What a great, what a great day to study God's word. We're going to be in Revelation chapter five today, um, and uh, I, I, this this week has just been phenomenal in some sense. Just studying this this passage of text. I, I in all in all my limited years of studying God's word. I've never come across a chapter that's so linked back to the Old Testament as Revelation chapter five. Um, I think there's, it's easy to find maybe a, a hundred or so references back to the Old Testament just from this, this chapter alone. I'm only gonna scratch the surface, um, kind of trying to boil and compress everything down into, into 35 or 40 something minutes if possible. But um, it's, a, it's a really phenomenal chapter. So whatever I kind of leave on the table, I, I pray you guys just dig in, be like with the Bereans, uh, take it home, study it. It's, it's phenomenal. But uh, there was something that happened on April 14th, 1970 that really became a f famous or infamous words. Uh, for those of you who are around and remember, the, 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 the phrase was, Houston, we have a problem. April, April 14th, 1970, Apollo 13 mission was on their third day uh, to, the, to a moon landing. And uh, there's three men on board and an oxygen tank ended up you know, blowing up, took out the oxygen tank next to it, blew a, a, a hole in the side of the spacecraft. And uh, the astronauts, realizing something had gone on, said, uh, Houston, uh, we've had a problem. Three men with, you know, those three men, their lives are just hanging on the edge. And so they, they reach back to the only help they, they have, and that's back at home base in Houston. And those words are going to come into play to, today as we, as we study Revelation chapter 5. So uh, let's, let's just get into, straight into it. Let's, let's stand up for the reading of God's word. This morning I chose to read from uh, the ESV version. I normally a New King James, but uh, today I went to the ESV. So here we go. It says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one on heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands 
seen with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that, that was in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Let's pray. Lord, we, we, we look to your word, Lord, to speak into the conditions of our hearts and our lives, Lord. And yet to look and see what you have done for us, Lord. This great and mighty thing that was long foretold. Lord, may, I pray you bring us to a place of, of responding to this message today, Lord, by your spirit. Just illuminate this passage to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may take a seat. So from throne to scroll, chapter four, the focus was on the throne of God. And now the, the, the focus of chapter five changes to this mysterious scroll. See, John in, in his vision, in this, in this being drawn up in the spirit into heaven, said, he, I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on back, sealed with seven seals. And this seems to be different than any other kind of throne room experience Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel has had. In their view, they were, they were seeing heaven from the earth, in a sense. But in this sense, John is, is in the spirit taken up into heaven. And so whatever he views, he he's has the, the, the viewpoint from heaven itself. But what he sees is, is, is very similar and is almost a copies of what uh, the prophets had seen before. In Daniel chapter seven, Daniel's view into heaven, he says, and I looked and thrones were placed and the ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and his ha the hair of his head was pure wool. His throne was fiery flames and its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out of it from before him, and thousands, thousands served him, and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. And the court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. Very parallel passages, Old Testament and New. This is why we cannot unhinge the New Testament from the Old. They're, they're locked. And so this this this. This, this book, this scroll comes into view as, as, as John turns his gaze and, and, and sees that all of heaven is looking at this scroll that is held in the right hand of this ancient of days, the, the heavenly father. And in Greek, that word's the biblion or a book or scroll. And it's a written document or parchment on skin. And it seems to be that there's many books in heaven. Revelation 20, verse 12 says, And I saw the dead and the great and small standing before the throne, and books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Except this book in Revelation chapter 5 seems to be a little more important. There's a, there's a difference to it. And that difference is because it is written on both sides, written on the front and also on the back. And it also has been sealed with seven seals. No other book in heaven seems to be sealed like that. 
Daniel, as he's given word in his prophecy, is finishing up his prophecy in Daniel chapter 12, he's told to seal up the words until the end time. And now John is, is, is in heaven is shown this scroll that is sealed and there's only one that can open it. And the fact that it's sealed on both sides, or it's written on both sides and sealed with seven seals actually brings us back to Jeremiah chapter 32. Jeremiah chapter 32, Jeremiah the prophet is told to go and buy a piece of land, a property. And so in verse nine says, and I bought the field at Anatoth from Hanamel, my cousin, and I weighed out the money to him, 17 shekels of silver, and I signed the deed and I sealed it, got witnesses and weighed the money on scales. So that, that piece, that scale or that the scroll that Jeremiah is then takes and he seals it and he signed it, it was the title deed to a piece of land that God had told him to buy. And yet he seals it because Jeremiah would have had a seal and possibly the property only would, would have had a seal. And so it would have been sealed, this document. And that seal was, was the, the outside of that document often it was the more general purposes of the title deed that, that all could see. Um, I guess if you really wanted to, you can go and see my title somewhere at a bank, but you wouldn't be able to see all the details that are, that are there for my house, right? And so this scroll that has, that's been sealed by Jeremiah, uh, it was a title deed to a piece of land and it had different seals set on it. Or, or in the Greek, they're called bolas. So we have, from ancient uh, history, we have a few of those bolas uh, and there's different symbols on, on, on them all. These seals are impressions that are sealed, uh, this, in this case, Aramaic papyrus. In this case, it was clay. Sometimes it was wax but it said significant that only one, only the holder of those seals could then open it. And so we have as this document that the Ancient of Days or God the Father is holding in his right hand at the throne. So what is so special that, that requires this scroll to be opened with these different seals? And so therefore there's a proclamation. And it says, I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, and this loud, this, this mighty, this strong angel proclaims with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seal? And I wonder sometimes, why, what, what was set, what set this angel apart? Why, 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 why call out his strength or his might? New King James says a strong angel. I mean, aren't all angels strong? <laughs> or does this one just have like just, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger muscles? That he was this, this, Rah. And so he proclaims with his loud voice, and, a and this is what interests me, is a challenge is set forth in heaven. We don't think of heaven as being a place that's challenged, but in this case, there's a challenge that's set forth. And that challenge that's set forth is, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Do you know worship and worthiness are the same, the same root word? Worship is ascribing worth to something. Worth is to ascribe weight. Or the original meaning of Greek is a proper weight. It was in the, it was in the balance of the scales. So Jeremiah, for the land, for that property, he had to weigh out 17 uh, pieces of silver. And that, that, that was the balance of, for that land. 
And so who has, is worthy, who has the weight to open this scroll and then to begin breaking its seals? Much like an encrypted email back and forth between people, uh, proton mail, I think you have to have a special key on both ends to be able to open and decipher this email. That, that seems to be what the seals are. You have to, have, you have, to not have knowledge or have ability to know what these seals mean. And so the drama begins in heaven. Do you ever think of drama in heaven? Because it's some, in verse three, there seems to be some drama. It says, and no one in heaven or on earth or under earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. No one is found worthy. And so John, it says in verse four, I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scrolls or to look at it. Was John left in the dark? Was there silence as the, as, as the mighty angel put out his proclamation? Who's worthy? Was the silence then broken by John's weeping? And that challenge went forth. It says, in heaven, that includes the redeemed saints that were in heaven at that time, at the point of the rapture, and, the, and also all, all the spiritual beings that were there in heaven as well. Angels untold, the myriads. Or was it on earth? There, there was no one of the people that were still living after the rapture of the church, in this time, there was nobody still on the earth that was worthy of, of opening this scroll. And also it was under the earth, and that is the unredeemed dead, those who are awaiting their final judgment. No one was found worthy. No one was, could open it. No one could even look into it. So why was John weeping? That's, that's the question that's haunted me all week. John was the disciple that Jesus loved, like the one that rest his head on him. On his, on his chest. Didn't he see the risen Savior Jesus' death, burial, resurrection? Wasn't he there on the Mount of Transfiguration when he saw Jesus become his full, fully engloried person? Didn't he see Jesus on the cross? Didn't he see him death, his death, burial, and resurrection? Why was he so surprised by this challenge? And that's why, because there's a problem. Houston, we've had a problem or heaven, we've had a problem. <laughs> Got to remember the context. John, the last of the 12 disciples, alone on the island of Patmos. All of his other friends, all the other apostles by this time have been martyred, killed for their faith. The church was being persecuted and that persecution was, was spreading them throughout the Roman Empire. That was a problem. The problem didn't start or end there. We all know there's a pro been a problem for a long time. We see death, sickness, disease all around us still. I mean, earlier this week, there was a shooting at that elderly apartment. Two dead. That's a problem. Babies are getting killed in the womb. That's, that's a problem. Children are being sold into human trafficking, even here on the central coast. That's a problem. Right now, there's more people worldwide in slavery than there ever has been. That's a problem. We hear of wars going on. We hear of rumors of wars. These are all problems. And yet we know in our core that this isn't right. 
These things aren't right. Wars aren't right. The killing of innocent babies, that's not right. And each different worldview, each different religion tries to deal with this problem of pain in different ways. I mean, evolution would just say, well, that's just survival of the fittest. Atheism tries to take away God out of the picture to try to account for this because how could a loving God allow these things to happen? And yet that doesn't fix any problems just taking away God out of the situation. See, in, in the core of our human DNA, we all long for days that we've never known. To live in peace, to not have to lock your door, to not have chainsaws ripped, you know, taken out of your truck while you're at work. All these things we, just long, we, we long for, but we've never experienced that perfect serenity. It's because we lost so much at the fall, much, much more than we probably ever would recognize. I don't think we will recognize that, all that we've lost until we're on the other side of eternity. At the fall, there's three specific things I want to call in that we lost. One was spiritual death. We lost that intimacy with God. There was a spiritual death that happened between us. And I think somehow we were clothed in white. We were clothed with something. Why else would Adam and Eve in the garden try to go and hide themselves and cover them with, with, with these, these fig leaves? if they had not been covered prior. They knew that they had lost. There was a spiritual death that happened. And then they lost this, the immortality, the, the, the ability to live forever that God had originally designed for them, that the tree of life offered. And so there was going to be a physical death, a coming physical death. And that was the reason they had to leave the garden altogether. God was not angry with them. God was not mad with them. I don't see that in the text. God was loving them by protecting them and saying, you've eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You are now on your pathway to death. If you now reach out your hand and eat of the tree of life, you'll live forever. And if you do that, you'll somehow live in between. You'll live forever in a death and dying state. And so I need to protect you for that because I'm going to make a way. God, is, God was going to make a way. And so God had to protect them. And he put them at the garden and he protected them. So we lost spiritual death. There was impending physical death. And thirdly, we lost, I believe, dominion over the earth. The legal right to rule and reign the earth. See, in Genesis 1.28, it says, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. What I strongly believe that this scroll was, and there's other viewpoints of what this scroll is, but what I strongly believe that this scroll was the title deed to earth. And it was a dominion that was lost in the garden and given over to Satan as we lost that dominion. Satan, who now became a ruler over this earth. Now, it's, it's a limited dominion. It's a limited dominion. Satan is not an infinite being like God. Satan is a created being who is unlimited. He's on a leash. But man, he's a horrible taskmaster. That's what we see in the wars and the babies dying. And all this pain and suffering, we see that is, that is by this horrible uh, taskmaster that we now serve. But Jesus said 
In John 14, 30, he says, I will no longer talk with you much for the ruler of this world is coming and he has nothing in me. See, I think Jesus knew that the earth still needed to be redeemed, that dominion still needed to be brought back to him. And the world, because of that, is still under a horrible sway to the thief even today. John 10 says, a thief comes only to kill, steal, and destroy. And that's all Satan can do. He can only uh, mimic what he sees. He can only steal and control. Satan does not bring any life or life abundantly like Jesus promised. And Satan is a thief. One of the one little breadcrumbs I'll leave on the table, but the Roman Empire, the Caesars had 24 priests because they had 24 of officially sanctioned religions within, the, within their empire. And so they had 24 priests. Where did Satan steal that number from? From the throne room of God. He's a, he's a thief. Satan is trying to take everything that's in heaven and try to bring it to here where he rules. But Satan cannot affect heaven. He can only steal. And so Jesus' final act in, is, is to reclaim the, domain, the dominion of the world and to give it back to the rightful heirs, the sons and daughters of men. Redemption by substitute through this kinsman redeemer that we see through the book of Ruth and through Leviticus. So why are there, after Jesus has come 2,000 years ago, why, there still, why is there still pain and suffering going on right now? Why are we hearing of death and dying and wars and rumors of war? Well, that's because it's like a pool party. It's like a pool party. You ever been to a pool party or at least a party that's happening around a pool and someone gets the idea that, oh man, that guy John, he's gonna go in the pool. So you like, you know, sneak over to some friends, hey, we're taking John out, we're gonna pull him, pull him into the pool. John doesn't wanna go in the pool. John has his wallet and cell phone, he's fully dressed. He's got his, he's got his nice boots on, he, he's not ready to go in the pool. And as his friends gather around to pull John in that pool, does John go willingly? No. John does not go willingly. John begins grabbing everything he can to try to keep himself from going in, but he knows he's going in, so he's taking everybody with him. So he grabs the old ladies, he grabs the little babies. John's just like, you all all coming in with me, and that's all Satan can do. All Satan can try to do is to, to grasp at straws. He's on a limited, uh, limited leash, and he's trying to bring us all in. Oh, but Christ... See, at the first coming of Christ, we were given access by believing in Jesus to be born again spiritually. He tells Nicodemus, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And that which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. He's offered a spiritual rebirth. And then on our coming physical death, Jesus said, I am, speaking about Lazarus' death and resurrection, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. We're offered that eternal life that, to be immoral once again. And Jesus, as our kinsman redeemer, he bought the right to the land. See, I, when, I, when, when, my, when my wife and I had to buy a house, we signed the title, and until 
the county or whatever did their thing, we weren't allowed access into the house. We were given the keys and said, you can't go in the house until you know, tomorrow because the house isn't actually officially yours. Although the paperwork had been signed, everything had, it, it still needed to go through the final process. And I think that's where we're at today. Jesus owns the title. He's the rightful heir, and yet he has yet to take it back in his final coming, in his second coming. And I believe that's what was, what was being talked about at the Mount Transfiguration. He was given his intention to purchase, to redeem back the earth and the land. And he had witnesses. He had the two heavenly witnesses, Moses and Elijah, and he had his three earthly witnesses, his three disciples, James, John, and Peter. Because at that time, according to 2 Corinthians 2, 7, Paul was saying, but we speak in the wisdom of God and mystery, the hidden wisdom with God, which God ordained before the ages of our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew. For if they had known, if they had known, this is the rulers of the age, if they had known, they would not have crucified the Lord in glory. The crucifixion was always God's plan. And it was to buy back not only the lineage, but the land. And that's according to Leviticus 25, verses 47 and 49. The, the, the right for kinsman redeemer required three things. That they'd be a close relative. Jesus became, God became man. They'd be willing. Boaz's relative, the unnamed relative, was not willing to redeem the land or the lineage. So close relative, willing, and then thirdly, able to purchase, had the weight, had what was required to purchase, and that's what Jesus did. So Jesus did for us. So verse five says, and one of the elders said to be, weep no more, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the, the scroll and its seven seals. The elder tells John, no more tears in heaven. Weep no more, because the lion, there's a lion. And that's, the, that's according to the prophecy in Genesis 49. Judah is a lion's whelp from the, from the prey. My son, you have gone up. He bows down. He lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who shall rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. That was the prophesied to one of Isaac's sons, to Judah. And then on that, on the root of da on the root of David, was speaking back to the, the messianic lineage of David. Isaiah eleven says, "There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse who shall stand as a banner to the people, for the Gentiles shall seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious. It's that one that has conquered. That word for conquer is nikeo. It's to overcome." And we like the lions. We like the, this king of the jungle. I mean, one of our favorite movies is Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, where, where Aslan, he submits himself to the process of, of, of being killed, and yet he knows the older rules. And he comes back to life. I mean, who, who didn't get chicken pox on their neck before, or chicken bumps before when they watched that movie? You see Aslan return with a, as a roaring lion brave, courageous, and strong. And so John does just that, oh, where's the lion? 
And yet he's met with something altogether different, the lion that was a lamb. And between the throne, this is verse six, between the throne and the four living creatures among the elders, I saw a lamb, a lamb standing that as though it had been slain. We don't like that. A lamb? How could it be a lamb? How could a lamb do this? We, I, I, back in 2020, I saw a lot, of, a lot of people, a lot of, especially guys, wearing shirts that said, lion, not sheep. You know, they're trying to say, I, I don't follow the crowd. I'm not one of those sheep. Oh, but that's the sheep is what did it, the lamb that laid down for us. And this lamb, it's standing so it's alive, but it also appears as it had been slain, just like the Messiah, just like Jesus, dead, buried, resurrected. And this is the title that, that somehow God has taken on from the foundation of the world. In Revelation 13, 8, it says, all who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Figure that out. Sin in the garden, that didn't, that didn't, that didn't surprise God. He was the lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. In fact, it was not a surprise because the first act of sacrifice was in the Garden of Eden. To cover Adam and Eve and those scratchy fig leaves that they grabbed. I don't know why. why there could have been something more. There had to be something better than the fig leaves. But they took fig leaves, nonetheless, to cover their, to cover their own sin of their own works. And yet God, seeing their needs, says, I'm going to cover you with something much better. And so he must have taken an innocent lamb and made sheepskin clothing for Adam and Eve there in the garden. Why are they sheep? Why was it a lamb? Because later on, Abel is going to become a tiller of the sheep or a keeper of the sheep. And it wasn't until after the flood that God gave mankind the ability and, and, and blessed the ability to eat meat. So the only reason Abel would have kept sheep was because of sacrifice and covering. All a picture of the lamb that is to come. This perfect lamb. And yet in Genesis 22, a few chapters later, Isaac and Abraham are on their way up to the mountain of sacrifice where God has told him he needs to sacrifice his own son. Abraham doesn't understand it all. He actually tells his servants, the, the boy and I were going to go up and then we're going to come back down. So Abraham knew something special was going to ha happen on that mountain. And he goes up and, this, and Isaac is like, Father, I, I see the wood and I see the fire, but where is the offering? Where's the sacrifice? And Abraham says something so profound. He said, God himself will provide a lamb, the lamb. God will provide himself the lamb. So they get up there. Abraham goes to follow through and he's stopped by the angel of the Lord and he, he turns around and what does he see? Does he see a lamb? No, he sees a ram. Why does he see a ram? God, God will provide a, a lamb, right? Well, that, because that would come at the cross. The lamb would be provided there. Well, this is all foretold. But this lamb is different that John sees. 
This lamb has seven horns and with seven eyes, which is kind of weird to think about, but this is the picture, and this is, goes back to Old Testament prophets and the visions they saw. These, these are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Seven signifies in Scripture spiritual perfection. So seven horns speak of a perfect kingdom. Daniel chapter eight says, and the male goat is the kingdom of Greece and the large horn that's between its eyes is its first king. So horns are kings with kingdoms and Jesus will reign with, over all of the kingdoms perfectly. And the seven eyes are the seven spirits of God into all the world. Isaiah 11 verse 12 says, the spirit of Yahweh shall rest upon him, the spirit of might and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of Yahweh. Jesus is all-knowing, this lamb's all-knowing to everything that happens in the world. And so Jesus approaches, sorry, the lamb, the lamb approaches the throne and takes from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. What was that approach like? All of heaven's gaze must have been there watching this, this slaughtered lamb but alive go and take from the ancient of days that scroll. Oh, it goes right back to Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. Daniel was saying, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and he brought them near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the people's nations, tongues, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed this event of the lamb taking the scroll was long, long foreshadowed. Verse eight says, and when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. See, they fell down alone in worship because they realized that this lamb was the lone was worthy. And they held harps and also they held these golden bowls full of incense. And I like how John just tells us what the golden bowls are. He says, it's the prayers of the saints. And this week we were in youth group, we were taught, we were, I was teaching through Luke uh, 18 where Jesus teaches the, the disciples to pray and to not lose heart, right? Jesus said, pray, don't, don't lose heart. Be like, that, be like that widow who just goes after the judge. Even though he's an unrighteous judge, just keep on that. But the whole context of that was the second coming of Christ from chapter 17, we're, we're to pray. And why, why? Why does that fit into the second coming of Christ? Because every time we pray for healing from sickness, from a comfort of loss of life, from wars that will cease, to the ability to live in safely, why, when we pray those things, we're praying the Lord's prayer. So he said to them, when you say, pray this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. We're praying for the second coming of Christ that will bring in his everlasting dominion, the perfect dominion. And he is the rightful recipient of the earth to rule and reign in the coming millennium and the ages to come, a perfect dominion. And so because of that, all heaven responds. And I hope that's our response. I hope we respond. And they sing a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. These are, this is the cry of the ransomed people. 
Have you considered recently what you're ransomed, what that cost? We were, they were a ransom people, and they just began to cry out, worthy are you, Lord. And they shall, it says, and they shall reign on the earth. There is a future ruling and reigning for those saints. And then John looked, verse 11, I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands. There was an innumerable about, innumerable amount of creatures in heaven. Uncountable, unfathomable, strong angels, beasts with foreheads, and all, just, just a wonder, and myriads of myriads. And they all began saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Oh, there's a worthiness. There's an acceptable weight to you, Jesus, to you, lamb that was slain. And then he hears of every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that's in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever. I mean, the response in heaven, the response on earth, under earth, everywhere, is there's a response. Everyone responds. And the four living creatures, again, they put their amen stamp on that. Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. And it was the first time, I believe, in humanity that, that the object of worship was the sacrifice. We worshiped the lamb that was slain as the sacrifice. The object of worship was the sacrifice thing. So church, how will you respond today? Because you must respond. Either you re respond by saying, no thanks, I'm gonna try to do it my own way. Or you respond by, by saying, I've never accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I need to believe and confess in him today because he is the lamb slain. He is my lion or do, we, say, or do we, we, we who walk around in self-righteousness saying, oh, I don't deserve this crown and just throw it down at his feet, this own perceived right, self-righteousness. Oh, we must respond. And one of the ways we're gonna do that is respond to communion. I forgot my communion. You see, not one creature didn't respond. And Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians, no doubt as a lamb going to slaughter, to take on the sins of the world. And he, and he says, Paul passed on it. He says, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke and he said, take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. If you want to remember, respond by remembering what Christ did with his body. Eat. Goes on to say, in the same manner, he also took the cup. After supper, saying, this cup is, is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. The lamb slain for our sins. Respond by taking his blood in remembrance of him.
Thank you, church. Respond with worship. Respond in, in prayer. Respond in joy and thanksgiving.